This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, COVID cases are down at schools around the city, but new variants that are spreading rapidly in the U.S. are a cause for potential wariness among officials. And the New Orleans Public School District announced problems they discovered at two area high schools, leading to warnings from officials. Tulane School of Public Health and the New Orleans Health Department released detailed data this week on who accessed the city-run testing for COVID last spring, which they say vindicates how they conducted the program. And less than 25% of the population at the New Orleans jail has been vaccinated against the coronavirus so far, according to the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Health reporter Philip Kiefer is with us. Hey, Philip. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hi, Charles. Morning. Marta, we're starting up first with education. COVID-19 cases in schools continue to fall in New Orleans, and experts may have new information on how variants are spreading among youth in sports. How are COVID-19 case counts faring in schools right now? Sure, so we're actually looking pretty good in New Orleans. Uh, They're only tracking eight active cases right now, um, with just about 100 people in quarantine, which was actually from two schools, which was interesting. So it was probably, you know, a single teacher or a single student that, you know, led to those exposures. And those numbers have just continued to trend down over the last couple of weeks. Um, I think, you know, naturally there's always a little bit of concern after a holiday. So, you know, we'll see if anything shows up in the numbers next week, but generally they're looking pretty good. Right. Cause there's data right now about, um, school sports and this, these new variants are particularly hitting kids hard. So what does that mean for our kids here? Yeah, so I think the main concern about these variants is that they've, um, they've been found to spread faster. And we know kids um, can certainly be a vector for spreading, you know, the disease. And, you know, youth sports are kind of the perfect storm for that to happen. And if you've got a lot of kids in close proximity, depending on the sport, they might not be wearing masks. You know, there's one particular study out of Minnesota that, uh, you know, the Star Tribune has a nice graph for um, in Carver County where they found, you know, a whole bunch of cases linked to spread in, you know, a few area schools and then a youth hockey program is where they found that to be spreading. And officials in Minnesota said they asked everyone to take precautions right away, but that, you know, few sports uh, were inclined to do so. So I think it's all about how, you know, people follow the rules here and what we know so far is that the district says they haven't heard anything about variants in schools, but we, you know, th- that's all the district knows. Yeah, and uh, reading your latest uh, weekly story about about the numbers, a couple things struck me. First of all, um, you know that it seems only uh, natural that cases would be would be down this week for a couple of reasons. The the city as a whole, the numbers are still looking good, and uh, you know also a lot of schools are on spring break for all or part of the week. But the, the thing I was really occurred to me that, that, you know, the next few weeks of data will be pretty critical and, and, you know, interesting is not exactly the right word, but interesting to watch because, um, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have kids coming back from Easter break, you know, in many cases, perhaps they've, you know, spent time with people outside of their home, their family, you know, their extended family. 
and also this this issue with the variants. And you know, this week the CDC announced that they believe that the the B one one seven UK variant is, is now the dominant uh, strain in the United States. I'm not totally sure on the Louisiana numbers, but but that's the that's the situation nationally. Right, and when you look nationally, states all around us are starting to uptick again. Louisiana, not yet, but it almost feels like, is it fair to say people are sort of bracing for, for a wave? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we are, you know, we are continuing to roll out vaccines pretty well in the state, although, you know, there was a story this week in the Times-Picayune about, about demand softening somewhat. Um, so I guess, you know, we'll see what happens. I think that the, the next few weeks of data will be very important to watch. In terms of variants, we're seeing a little bit of a split pandemic emerge even in Louisiana. I mean, for a while, southwest Louisiana has had the, um, the roughest numbers, and that's where we've been documenting most of the recent B117 cases. There was a while when they were pretty evenly split between New Orleans and there. And we're seeing in Southwest Louisiana that uh, vaccine uptake is slower, although it's hard to tell how much of that is just because so many people are displaced that their overall population estimates are wrong. But um, Certainly, we're seeing a lot of the same trends with an outbreak potentially driven by variant cases emerging in the Lake Charles area. Another story that you have this week, Marta, uh, concerns problems discovered at two high schools, one of special ed high school and another course credit problems. What happened first at Rooted High School? Yeah, so this is actually Rooted's second warning this um, semester, which is kind of a surprise because we haven't really seen them come up before. But, you know, I think this is something that we're going to see a lot more in cases of the district actually, you know, going in and digging into school records, which is something they hadn't done, you know, prior to the issues at Kennedy. So um, what happened at Rooted previously is they got caught for having a, a grade, grading scale that didn't align with the state's rules. They had an ABCF grading scale with no D. And, you know, the, the state and the district said that you can't do that. You have to have you have to have D's, <laughs> so. Huh. so this is kind of, this is really along those lines, but it, it is in course offerings. It turns out Rupert was offering kids two extra classes a day, and well, that's something that could be done. If you're going to offer classes, they have to be supervised by teachers who, you know, have certification to offer those classes, and it, it doesn't sound like they were doing that properly, um, and so, and then the, another quirk in there was that they were letting kids, if they, if they didn't meet those instructional minute requirements, they were kind of letting kids choose which class to fail, which doesn't sound like a way to me how you can apply instructional minutes. That's interesting. That, I, I would say, especially, you know, as Marta mentioned, post, you know, to bring everybody up to speed, the, the, uh, the John F. Kennedy uh, high school graduation scandal a couple of years ago, which Marta, Marta was, uh, you know, the first one to break the early stories on that due to some kind of similar reasons to what you're describing today, um, you know, about half the 2019 class at Kennedy was found ineligible to graduate a month after they actually had their graduation ceremony. One of those issues at Kennedy was that they were having students um, in, enrolled in online courses, remote, you know, basically remote courses uh, that 
it turned out they were invalid the credits that they, that they got um, because they weren't they weren't being overseen by a certified teacher. Mm. I want to go back to the first problem that you talked about. I'm just curious if, if you know why they wouldn't have a D. Just why would the cliff be so steep? Yeah, the, the, and this is this you know this is an interesting area because you know charters in theory are allowed to uh, you know experiment a little and you know this was system was created so that we could you know have unique systems and. The reason that the founder of the school says they didn't have a D is because he doesn't think a, a D is worth a grade, right? He thinks if you're at a D that you're, you you're can, failing. in theory, bump up, do some work, and get to a C, and that you don't want to have that D on your transcript at all, mm. and that it's, you know, he equates a D to failing, so they, basically, if you were going to get a D, you got an F. Hmm. He's saying that a D is not worth earning. So if you're in the D category, you should be pushing to get a C. But, you know, obviously we know that's not possible for all kids in all circumstances. And so if this was adversely affecting kids who had earned some Ds or would keep them from not graduating, I think that's where the district wanted to step in. Right. Okay. Uh, And tell us about the Sophie Wright Charter High School. What happened there? Yeah, so at Sophie B. Wright, they did an audit of their uh, special education files. This is a, um, another thing that, you know, they had done, the district had done previously, but I think they've really uh, bumped it up in light of what had happened at Kennedy. I think one of the most alarming things in there was that they had found that files had been changed from, you know, allegedly having a study hall time period in them from the special education service logs to having an English 4 service provided. Um, so that's, you know, that's a pretty big difference. Was it study hall with someone who was just watching you or were you actually being instructed by an English four instructor? Mm. You know, that's, that's a graduation requirement. Right. The allegation is, is that, um, they, they, they should have been in English four and it was marked in records as being in English four, but it was actually just a study hall. It's unclear. It's unclear where they were or what was happening. And then if that service was, you know, it could have just been help for English 4, or was it actually supposed to be instruction in English 4? It's not really clear from this letter. I see. And remind us what happens with these um, warnings. Yeah, so the district intervenes. Uh, they can intervene at what is called a level 1, and if they choose to do so at a level 1, those letters aren't automatically made public. Um, in both these cases, they chose to intervene at a level 2, and those are you know, subsequently posted on their website. Um, which is where we find them, um, which is actually something the Lens asked them to do a few years ago. And I like to think that maybe they listen to us because it helps make them more transparent. Right. Um, I don't know if that's entirely the reason that they started posting these letters, but um, I certainly think it's it's helpful for families and uh, for the public. Yeah, and and the level one warning, you know, as as Marta said, isn't made public, and then an intervention occurs. The level two warning is the level at which you know, you're potentially putting your charter in danger. Isn't, is this that right? Right. So if you, if you do not take or complete the corrective action they ask for on the level two, um, your charter can come up for consideration. Okay. We've seen that happen in a couple, a couple schools. Uh, Harney a few years ago. Threatened once or twice. Harney Charter School um, was persistently warned over many, many issues, financial, academic, lots of stuff. Um, and they went up for, for charter, were up for charter revocation. The board voted to voluntarily hand their charter back to the to the district. But um, they were up for charter revocation, even though they weren't 
technically a failing school by the state standards. So usually you, your charter your charter gets pulled or, or not renewed if you're if you're failing uh, you know if you're failing under state standards. But chart Carney, uh, I believe, was a C school that year. Okay, thanks for keeping an eye on it for us, Marta. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, health reporter Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. When you listen to this podcast or read a story at our website, you join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. With more and more noise and information coming at us every day, it's important to have a place you can rely on for truth and balance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org donate. And thank you. Philip, in Health News, new published research from the Tulane School of Public Health and the New Orleans Health Department looks at who accessed city-run testing last spring, how far they traveled to get there, They're touting this as a vindication of their approach, and they say it carries important lessons for vaccine rollout. Who did the study? What were they looking at? Tell us about the whole thing. So the the study was just published in um, the peer-reviewed journal BMC Public Health. Um, It was led by a geographer at Tulane named Julie Hernandez, along with one of her grad students, and then was co-authored by the two top city health officials, Jennifer Vagno and Chantelle Reed. Julie Hernandez is a longtime volunteer with the testing and then vaccination programs with the city, and um, realized early on that the city had data on where people who were accessing testing at public sites lived. They had people's addresses in sort of uh, a private database from their insurance information. Um, And so the city's goal in standing up these public testing sites, not just the the drive-through sites that were run by the National Guard, um, but the the walk-up sites that moved from week to week. Their goal in setting those up was to make testing more available in neighborhoods that might not have consistent access to sort of traditional healthcare and therefore COVID testing. And so by looking at who was getting tested over the spring, um, this team was hoping to figure out if that had in fact happened. Okay. And what did they find? Basically, yes. So they looked at... um, where people were coming from to get tested first at the drive-through sites and then at the walk-up sites that were established in April. So drive-through sites were there, I believe, starting in March only for symptomatic people and then obviously until now. Um, And then the city opened these walk-up sites. And what they found was that opening the walk-up sites, first of all, dramatically reduced the distance that anyone in the city would have to travel to get to the nearest site. And that was a big deal, they all said, because 20% of New Orleans households do not have access to a car and um, that that's concentrated among Black residents of the city who were also, as 
we've seen and talked about over and over again, most at risk of dying from COVID-19. And so not only were people closer to testing sites, um, more people from particularly vulnerable census tracts that they were looking at were actually getting tested. So they said standing up these walk-up testing sites were also just simply increasing the number of people in targeted areas who were getting tests. Mm. Interestingly, it wasn't that so the, the average person in the city wasn't actually going to the nearest testing site. Um, they were going to one slightly further away than the nearest one. But when that average kind of conceals demographic level um, trends, and they found that both Asian American populations and black populations um, were going or were much more likely to go to the nearest testing site and that people over the age of 65 were likely to go to the nearest testing site. So they say these were at risk populations because those populations on average in New Orleans face larger barriers to medical care. And so we believe that these testing sites seem to have made um, made testing more accessible. The really interesting sort of counterpoint is, so they used the demographic category Hispanic um, and found that actually people in that demographic ca- category, uh, Hispanic, were traveling further than any other group to access testing, in large part because they were coming from Kenner and other parts of Jefferson Parish to get tested. Um, The limitation that Dr. Hernandez points out is that they don't know if people, you know, were accessing testing near a job or some other convenient location. So it's possible that there are lots of other things going into the geography of where people got tested, but basically providing testing in neighborhoods seemed to mean that people in high-risk demographics were getting tested at the places near them. Hmm. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because we have, you know, high concentrated or, you know, concentrated populations of uh, Hispanic people who live in Jefferson Parish. And I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine that many of them, you know, that a significant percentage of them work in the city. So if we're looking at, you know, if we're looking at testing sites only in the city, it's going to show that people who are commuting in and getting tested while they're at work are driving longer distances. Uh, That that just, you know, it stands to reason. Let me ask you, Philip, do you know, have you talked to anybody at the city uh, about, you know, to what extent these data uh, that they found on testing, to what extent are they uh, informing um, the city's approach to vaccinations? Yeah, um, that's kind of the the key point that Dr. Avegno was um, making when when we spoke earlier this week. I, I mean, it, it's basically the underpinning this this whole strategy that they pursued um, in testing is underpinning the city's approach to vaccinations. You know, they're saying there were a couple advantages that they see to the testing. One, that people didn't have to travel as far, but two, they, and this isn't something they could capture in data, but both um, Dr. Hernandez and Avegno pointed out to me is that they think one of the advantages was simply um, 
giving people who might have had negative experiences in the existing healthcare system or believe that that system isn't for them um, a place to get medical care that um, is familiar, that's associated with a community organization that's in their neighborhood. And so they say that's a really important takeaway. Um, you know, the city has been basically modeled on this walk-up testing platform doing their own vaccination sites um, basically since vaccines first um, became available to the elderly population. Um, the issue is that the city receives a very small proportion of the total um, vaccines that come to the New Orleans area. Most of them go to LCMC and Oshner, and there have been partnerships set up to get those out into the community. Um, but that seems to be, in the case of testing, the city um, wasn't deeply constrained in its um, supply of tests, at least after the first couple months where things were really scarce. Um, whereas now they have a very limited number of vaccines to apply to neighborhood sites like this. But they are, um, you know, starting to do more and more of this hyperlocal targeting of vaccines. You know, we've got um, the city starting to do door-to-door -door canvassing. And Dr. Avegno is very excited about this. They're doing a Shots for Shots event at um, the Dragon's Den on Frenchman Street on Friday. And that's something she'd like mm -hmm. to see more of. But basically to, in the same model as testing, bring vaccines out of uh, traditional healthcare settings and onto, um, onto neighborhood streets themselves. And it'll be interesting to see if they if they do an analysis um, of the the racial equity data on this. Um, the city is, as you've said, is making use of its relatively limited supply by doing these, you know, neighborhood based um, uh, vaccination sites. But we're also seeing strategies uh, like the free bus pass program that they're doing to the convention center. I actually asked um, Dr. Vigno if she had data on who was accessing testing at the convention center in the same vein as this. Um, and she said she's still waiting on it from the state. The city doesn't actually have direct access to that data set. She said that several thousand of these free Uber rides that the city has um, made available have been used and that RTA usage, which um, runs a shuttle from New Orleans East to the convention center, has been lower, um, but that it's still, they still think it's an important um, transit component, but that she's still waiting to learn what this convention center site has meant in terms of geographic access to vaccines. Okay, let me ask you about uh, testing now. Since the city-run testing sites have been closed, it's obviously the messaging around around the vaccine is is paramount and and primary. Uh, how important is testing still, as far as you know, what you can tell the city is is trying to do? I mean, it's I don't have 
have someone else telling me in their words, you know, this is how important testing is right now. But what I what I can say is, if we stop testing, um, obviously the the danger of the pandemic has not gone away. We can see that in Michigan. We can see that in Minnesota. Um, and uh, if we were to stop testing altogether, I think it would be very possible that we would be quickly overwhelmed the way so dr vegan points out that there are still two walk-up testing providers operating that did not exist in the spring there's a group called core and oshner has some um neighborhood sites when you look at city testing data though um 60 50 to 60 percent of the total tests that have been done in the city each week since um, these city-run testing sites were closed in early March, um, 60% of those tests do come from Tulane, which is testing most of its undergrads multiple times a week. It looks like the city is still hitting the daily testing benchmarks that they've been saying this entire pandemic. They, um, they've said that they want to be testing 500 people, I believe, a day, and they're at about 1,500 on average, mm. excluding all the two-line tests. Um, and Dr. Vegna says that the fact that Tulane is contributing so many of the city's overall tests isn't a concern to her because she thinks that um, that's a really valuable part of the city's uh, COVID prevention work that Tulane could easily become sort of an amplifier of the pandemic. And so Mm. that only represents a good thing to have that many tests coming out of there. Um, She also says that testing in schools um, has picked up since, um, since the early pandemic and that therefore we have more of a picture of how COVID is spreading in the community outside of these community testing sites. We're just going to make that point too, Philip, about, you know, kids. And obviously I'm not a health expert, but I think we kind of think about it like we think about the flu, right? Like who can you potentially spread it to or who might you have caught it from? So even if an adult is vaccinated and tested, it turns out they have it, you know, your kid might be the you know, potential source of that, or, you know, maybe they're the one who brought it home. Right. And I mean, B117 complicates everything so much because earlier in the pandemic, before these variants started spreading, basically what we were hearing from public health experts, including Susan Hassig at Tulane, um, also at the School of Public Health, um, was that basically schools are indicators of the prevalence of COVID in the broader community. Kids catch it at home, but then they don't really spread COVID in schools. So if that's true, then yeah, having testing in schools um, means that we can kind of see how widespread COVID is in the community because we can see how many families appear to be catching it. That's a lot harder now because the most recent evidence is suggesting that kids can actually spread B117 um, much more readily than the sort of baseline version of SARS-CoV-2. And so schools might end up becoming sites of transmission between students, which previously hadn't, by all accounts, really been part of the, the picture. Right. I heard someone describe it like that too last year when we were in kind of that phase where we were saying kids weren't spreading it as 
is that we had really taken kids out of the equation, right? Because we had closed schools, we had closed camps, families were staying home, and, and you know, it's a different picture this spring. Okay, moving on to criminal justice. Nick is on vacation this week, so Charles, your old beat, uh, there was a report this week that just under a quarter of people incarcerated at the Orleans Parish Jail have gotten vaccinated, according to the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office. Questions remain regarding how OPSO is going about procuring the vaccine and when there will be enough doses for the rest of the jail population. How do the rates at uh, the jail compare to the rest of the city? So the, the rates at the jail are, it, it, really, de- it really depends on, on some unknowns. Assuming that the quarter or so represents people who are fully vaccinated, have either had uh, one Johnson & Johnson shot or two uh, of uh, the uh, Moderna shots. Uh, I don't believe they've gotten any. Uh, we haven't seen any information that they've gotten any of the Pfizer at the jail. So if they've either had one Johnson & Johnson shot or two uh, Moderna shots, uh, then the rate would be very similar to this to the city, uh, which, is, which is similarly about a quarter. But if a significant chunk of that quarter of the jail population um, is only partially vaccinated, then it would be, it, it, it would likely be fairly significantly behind the rest of the city. And the story suggests that the, that the number of uh, vaccinations that they procured doesn't sync up with the number that they're saying was administered, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, this, when Nick is doing a story like this, you know, this is all happening behind the walls of a jail. Yeah. So he's going to be dependent on, on what uh, the sheriff's office is willing to tell him in a lot of cases, um, you know, uh, especially because things like public records requests can take quite a bit longer than, than we're willing or able to put in in, in order to, to publish. Um, so, you know, we asked the question about what, how many of this number are fully vaccinated versus how many are only partially vaccinated. We didn't get an answer on that. And the other thing is uh, that the state data showed that um, only 175 doses of Johnson & Johnson went to the jail, um, whereas uh, they are saying that they have over 200 people vaccinated. So we were having trouble squaring that. Right. Um, we, we never really got an answer on that, and, and we, never, we never got an answer on, on, you know, where did this Moderna shipment come from, um, which doesn't appear in the state data as going to the jail. But, you know, we didn't get an answer from, the, from LDH, Louisiana Department of Health, or the jail. So, yeah, it's unclear. Uh, you know, post-publication, we did get an additional statement from the sheriff's office who indicated that they had gotten a their first shipment of, uh, of second dose Moderna shots. You know, again, we're, we're not able to confirm in the, in the available data that they had gotten a, a first dose shipment, although they say that they have. Um, I'm not saying they're, they're not telling me the truth. It, it, sir, if, if the state data is, is lagging or, or somewhat wrong, that neither of those things would be unusual. We were just never able to get clarity on this. But as of this week, according to the sheriff's office, they, they will have used their entire supply. So what they're telling us is that they are getting out the shots uh, in a timely fashion as they're coming in. And how do we compare to the rest of the state's 
population of, of inmates? This is another tough one to answer. I can tell you that versus uh, the state prison system, the Department of Corrections, you know, prison system, which is which is made up of, uh, you know, people who have been convicted and sentenced, the New Orleans jail is doing significantly better because uh, I believe that the number was around 14% there, but we don't really know. Basically, there's no central repository of data for for uh, for par- parish jails, so it would be hard to say. I would imagine, however, that it's gonna it's gonna mirror the uh, the vaccination rates in the larger populations in those areas. So you're gonna probably see higher rates of vaccinations at parish jails throughout Southeast Louisiana, lower rates in more rural areas. I would guess, but I don't know. Okay. Do you know any? Are they releasing any data? on cases at Orleans Parish Jail? They have not in quite a while that I'm aware. They were, for a period early and mid-pandemic, they were they were doing regular sort of proactive releases. Like you didn't, you didn't have to ask for them, they were just putting them out mm. um, on, on, on how many people in the jail had COVID. That uh, ended uh, for quite a while in the middle of summer. They did a couple of sporadic ones in the fall, and I don't believe there's been one since then. So yeah, that's also unclear. I'm not entirely sure why that dropped off. Um, okay. I do know that the first time it dropped off, it was right after the, the jail declared itself COVID-free. Huh. With it, within weeks, we learned that it was not exactly COVID-free, but once they sort of had the mission accomplished press release, they stopped putting those out for quite a while, like a couple months. Okay, this is gonna be a lot of negatives in this sentence, but the lack of them preemptively reporting COVID cases, the drop-off of preemptive reporting without you having to ask, does not suggest necessarily that there are no cases in the jail. Oh, certainly not. I mean, as I said, you know, as I said, after after the, the mid-July mission accomplished, we learned a few weeks later that, that, that they were surging again. I, I can't say why they're not doing it. Uh, I just know that, that they haven't been doing it or at least haven't been doing it nearly as regularly. Okay. It's all COVID all the time on this podcast this week. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's not a precursor. You're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's over by Easter, remember? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Two weeks to stop the spread. Mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I was expecting to see more of a B117 surge here after Mardi Gras, and I do. I'm still holding my breath. Oh, well, my I also God. I had that in my notes this week because, yeah, I think it could be Easter. Mardi Gras, we got lucky. It was so cold. There was not as a soul out there. That's true. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, well, have a good week. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>